Hi, I'm Ed Densel, and this is a special episode of Unfound. Back on January 3rd, 2021, I released an Unfound Now on the Unfound podcast channel, where I analyzed the disappearance of Jason Landry, who went missing after a car wreck outside Luling, Texas, on December 13th, 2020, while on his way home from college. Because of this coverage, John Lorden at Lorden Arts was very gracious in asking me to take part in a joint interview with Jason's father, Kent. That show came out on John's YouTube channel on February 5th, 2021. In this special Monday episode, you will hear that coverage. It will be followed by my analysis of the new facts revealed during the interview. I will also give you a theory on why many searches for missing people are not successful, at least the first time around. And now, the interview John and I conducted with Kent Landry on February 2nd, 2021. Hey everyone, John Lorden here. We have a very special Searchlight Update episode. This is on a case that we covered a few weeks ago, the disappearance of Jason Landry. We've got tons of new information from law enforcement answering some of those questions that many of you out there had from the first video that released. We've got new pictures that they've released that we can analyze for ourselves, try to make more sense of what actually happened out on that road. Uh, we've got comments and questions from you guys that you posted in the first video. We're going to work those into today's presentation as well as we interview and get new perspective from a family member working hard to find his son. That is Kent Landry. For this case, I decided that I needed some help. So returning to the channel, I think for the second time, is Ed Denzel from Unfound. Thank you for the help, Ed. Uh, you're welcome. Glad to be here, John. Yeah, I really appreciate the episode of Unfound Now that you had done on this case really gave me some good perspective. I, I wouldn't, I, I was kind of worrying about the path. I mean, when you hear about this case, of course, you're going to look at the travel path, but that explanation about the missed turn was just spot on. And uh, it was such Thank an important you. component to this. So uh, Ed and I have been working in the background on some cases lately, kind of helping each other out here or there. I thought this would be a good time to bring him on and help with this case and hopefully mm -hmm. help prompt him to share this, uh, with the unfound podcast audience as well. So that's kind of what we're doing absolutely. here. Uh, Ed, can you tell us a little bit about unfound? I absolutely can. Uh, started unfound in September of 2016. Uh, we are quickly coming up on our 200th episode or disappearance covered, although we have about 230 podcast episodes. Um, uh, they come out every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern on iTunes, Spotify, Podomatic, and a variety of other, of course, uh, platforms, podcast platforms across the United States and the rest of the, the world. And I could not do the program without my assistants, Emily, Cherie, Carrie, Heather, Eric, and Natasha. And we do a live show on Wednesday nights on the Unfound uh, YouTube channel at 9 p.m. Eastern where people can join in. It's a little, little like a potpourri of true crime news and mixed in with pop culture issues. 
So you can tune in and maybe ask me some questions, but that's what's going on on Unfound right now, four and a half years in. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. And with us now is local pastor at Southminster Presbyterian Church. Uh, also, is it former attorney, active attorney? What's your status in terms of legal work, Kent? Um, well, I'm, li- I'm still licensed in three states. I'm actually classified as inactive status. So I am an attorney. I'm just not actively practicing. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's um, I-, I suppose that there was a calling to you to actually make that career change. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's just uh, it, it, it's it's an interesting kind of factoid in this whole thing. It's not often that you hear about someone coming from your line of work and uh, and moving. Yeah. I'm sure you'll have more than a few people saying I, I went from the dark to the light. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Be that as it may. Um, yeah. It's been an unusual journey. Certainly. I, I, I'm not your typical pastor. Certainly. That yeah. Would be the, uh, yeah. Uh, but it is an important connection. You know, um, Ed and I both speak with a lot of families that are facing similar situations. One of the frequent tips that I give them is get in touch with the local churches, uh, particularly when they're trying to get help on searches together. Churches are just such a great resource. I mean, you have you have people with open hearts there. Uh, you're able to engage them um, in terms of fundraising and things like that. I, I don't think there's much better than you can get with a good church community. Of course, on top of that, especially for you, I've been seeing all the emotional support that you're getting uh, from, your, from your church members and such an important component in cases like this, which is faith, which is holding on to that hope. You know, you're, you're looking for the truth, you're looking for answers and with what you're facing, I mean, we're over 50 days now, you know, things um, can sometimes get very dark for people. And if they don't have those resources to kind of keep that energy, keep that light, it can be really, really tough. Do you have any thoughts or perspective on that? You know, I I have, I mean, you know, I've gotten many 2 a.m. calls. I, I've dealt with death in in many, many ways in, in, in both of my chapters of life. But I, I can say without any doubt, you know, because you always hear that this is the worst thing that can happen to anyone to have to deal with this for their children. I, I truly can't imagine, and y'all deal with families all the time. I can't imagine going through this without faith, without knowing that whatever happens, um, I'm going to see my son again. Yeah. It may be here on earth or it'll be in heaven. But without that certainty, without having God at the center of this, and we have literally, since this began, our church has run a a prayer chain. Every 15 minutes, a new person is praying for us. We've had at any one moment, like over 6,000 people praying for us. Prayer and faith are the only thing keeping us going because as you said, this is over 50 days. I'm I'm not a fool. Uh, I, I can do math. Um, I know that the likely outcomes are are dark. It's, but anyway, it's only dark from from the perspective of the here and now. No matter what happens, I'm going to spend all eternity with Jason. So, not that anyone would ever expect this, but in terms of the getting through it, it that's the only thing I, I truly can. I, I cannot even begin to fathom what it would be like for a family to go through this 
um, and all the emotions and the ups and the downs with, without faith. I, I truly can't. And, and I'd encourage any family, if you're watching this and you're going through the same thing and you don't have anyone to talk to, feel free to call me. Uh, feel free to contact a, a local church or pastor because you need that help. You, you can't get through this one on your own. You need a community of, of people to support you. And, and that's what's happening in our life every day, every, every hour. Yeah. Uh, someone's, someone's praying for us. Yeah, it's, it is, you're, you're touching on such an important point. And Ed, I think uh, you could probably speak to this too. Talk about putting a team together, how important that is. Yeah. Well, regarding uh, Jason's disappearance and organizing searches, going to church, I, I think that's a spectacular idea. Um, because one of the issues that I, I know in those disappearances were searches needed to be done. Sometimes searches, there's nowhere to search. You just don't know. There's not enough facts. But for those disappearances where you have a pretty good idea where the disappearance happened, a lot of families do have problems getting a group together. Sometimes it's just five or six of them out there. Yeah. And of course, that's not going to be good enough. It's good that they're out there. They have to do it. But um, that's going to take probably some luck. If a person is out there, the remains out there with five or six people not even knowing which direction a person went, it's just probably going to just be luck if remains are found. So, yes, it's good that um, families have a place to go where other people just won't be there because they're, they're quite required to be there, but they want to be there because they share the same faith, same ideology, same values, same integrity. That, that helps a lot with searches absolutely yeah um now kent i know watching and, and looking through the media and the posts that you have put out uh some obvious frustrations that you had with major media and i think that was one comment in particular but i can ask you now was there other things about the major media coverage that you were upset about or was it particularly the bag full of drugs comment it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I think certainly, particularly the the bag full of drugs. Um, you, you know, media is that they're they're doing things for their purposes. It's not necessarily your purposes. Um, they're useful. They're helpful. Uh, some I, I can just tell you in terms of the interviews and the people I met. Some are absolutely caring and absolutely genuine, mm -hmm. and some don't give a flying flip about you or the case and you can tell. Yeah. And, you know, for that, I'm like, I, I would say for anyone in that, if you, you know, have a little bit of awareness, have a little bit of compassion. If you, if you can't understand what a parent or a family member is doing, is going potentially going through at a time like this, you're probably not in the right profession. Um, but be that as it may, certainly the, the, the great annoyance and, and I, you know, I, 
we all make mistakes. So I'm, I try to be pretty forgiving, but uh, that one uh, egregious one, uh, you know, you can say anything you want about me. That's okay. Yeah. But you know, don't, don't say that about my children or my family. We're going to have an issue. Yeah. Was that, was that something that, that they just pulled out of thin air or was that them misconstruing something you said? How do you look back on that now? Um, as I understand it, the way this came about is uh, station in Austin did a freedom of information request for any documents from the highway patrol. They took what is not even the normal evidence sheet. I'm sure y'all know exactly how those work. And normally when you take something actually into evidence, you categorize it, you, you quantify it, you identify it clearly. All there was was, was a backpack uh, with narcotics. That's it. And somehow in their mind that translated into a backpack filled with narcotics, which it's, you know, when you say a backpack's filled with narcotics, you know, supposition and, and then it just really took a, a very uh, abrupt turn. And surprisingly later, I just actually, I guess two days ago for the first time, someone from that station called to apologize. Wow. Um, so I take that as um, at least someone had a, a, a functioning brain. Um, yeah. But I wasn't, I wasn't going to talk to him until, until they did. Cause I just, that's not, that's not good. That's not good journalism. No. And that's not, that, that doesn't advance the ball in any way outside of giving them more clicks by sensationalizing what is already, I think in terms of uh I think the thing about this case is it captures people's hearts for anyone who is a parent, particularly I think of a, of a child who's maybe driving anyone over the age of 16. This captures our heart because this is all of our worst nightmare. We all live this the minute, you know, Johnny or Susie walks out the door and we can't protect them anymore. All any parent can do is hope and pray that things go well, that nothing bad happens. Uh, anytime you hear an ambulance, you think, oh, well, my kid's out somewhere, you know, is it them? Um, and this is just the the nightmare, I think, for all parents. So I think it it catches attention without the need for um, hurtful and harmful embellishment that is not in any way justified by uh, the facts or the circumstances. I think there's a unfortunate aspect um, that I see pretty frequently in, in coverage on cases like this, where uh, the, some people in the public are looking to categorize the events in such a way that it makes them feel more comfortable, that they can kind of write off, oh, this is a drug addict. Oh, this is a sex worker. Oh, this is this, this is that. And that's what I thought was particularly damaging about that particular comment, because it all of a sudden moves the conversation about young guy, bright future, caring family, family that gives to the community in such a significant way. Oh, but yeah, you know, bag full of drugs. And that, that theory that's kicking around about, oh, this was a drop off or a pickup or a this or a that all of a sudden gets this big boost. And when you look at the reality, which thankfully... Uh, the sheriffs have released a ton of new information, and we're going to learn the reality as we go through that today. It's a completely different story um, and nowhere near the the clicks that that article likely got. Yeah. Um, what about with law enforcement now? Are your feelings, you know, we talk to families a lot. Sometimes things can get tough between the families and law enforcement. How's that relationship going right now? 
you know, we've had a, a number of agencies working on this case, some uh, very much in the background, everything from um, the Texas Rangers, I know I've done some forensic work, um, you know, a lot of the, the uh, forensic stuff, which is not complete, it's in the hands of uh, state agencies and testing labs and whatnot. I know there's a conversation uh, about the FBI or uh, some, some other federal side. You know, in terms of local agencies, the Caldwell County Sheriff's Office uh, has been uh, excellent in our relationship with them. You know, and we all have good and bad days. Uh, the frustration that I see, I guess, particularly as a former lawyer, I would have wished uh, some of the uh, initial investigation um, had been handled differently because as y'all you know better than me, and I'm sure many of your listeners, um, once you don't capture evidence correctly at the beginning, it's gone. It's, it's use, even if you get something, it's useless. I always remember when I was a lawyer and, and I practiced both criminal and civil, our approach was always, always be, as you're working through the case, always be preparing for trial because that way, you know, do it right, the, or put it another way, do it right the first time. Yeah. Uh, because if you don't do it right the first time, it's not usable. And it, particularly in this case, it, uh, there's a lot of, um, I'm sure, unanswered questions that are caused, and unfortunately, we will not be able to answer them. And of course, is, is the parent sitting here, that means we don't have an answer as to, to what happened and where Jason is right now. And so that's the part that, that hurts the most is, and we can't go back in time and recreate these answers. We're just left with question marks, which causes us to, to waste a lot of time and energy uh, when we could have had a simple fact. Once you get that fact, then you can pin it to another fact, and then you can keep going down the line to hopefully get the answer in the end. Right. Right. Can you can you pick out something uh, that they didn't do initially that you think? I mean, we probably could go down a list, but something that well, jumps right into your mind that they should have done that night, that morning, uh, that well, now is the time has passed. It can't be done now. Process the accident scene. Um, uh, properly uh, retain and catalog the evidence. Um, look for, uh, I guess, uh, in terms of better information in terms of trail. Um, this is a pretty rural area, but I mean, cordon off the, the air. I mean, even in the most basic thing, put out some police tape and, you know, make sure that no one tamper, uh, you know, contaminates the scene with other footprints and scent. And, you know, y'all know how this goes, yeah. you know, cordon off the scene, make sure that, that, the investigators who need to come out to do the proper forensic analysis can do that forensic analysis. Yeah. It's interesting because I know so many missing persons cases, you know, will, will solve themselves within a matter of a, of a few days. And I think that brings a certain kind of, Oh, we've got another one of these from law enforcement's perspective. What's different about this case in particular is you kind of had it compounded by the fact that this isn't just, a missing persons report that got called in, you're finding the guy missing at the scene of an accident. And I know that there's another, you know, thing that frequently happens there where sometimes people that are driving under the influence will flee a scene like that. And they'll also pop back up a day or two later. It just, it's unfortunate because I see from law enforcement's perspective, they feel like they've seen this situation before and they're kind of treating it in that way. And 
this is one of those more rare cases where no, we haven't seen a situation like this before. We've we've got a young man that's that's missing for over fifty days at this point, and you're right, you can't go back. You can't go back and do those things. Right? I was really surprised by the news coverage I was seeing, and there were still parts of the car that were effectively at the tree, and it's like you know. Wouldn't you at least just bag that stuff? I mean, at least take it back with the car. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty unfortunate in that way. But sounds like you're you're having some good uh, interaction with them. We know that they did this pretty significant release of information, which I wish we would see in more cases. I think they're they're doing right by the case, releasing this new batch of information and the new photos, uh, particularly with some of the hard questions that the public was was bringing up about it. Yeah. And then that's the thing about this. I mean, we all, you know, we're all, we're all human. We all, we all make mistakes every day. Lord knows I do. But, you know, the, that, the part of this aspect is just the frustration. Once it's messed up, you can never get it back. But, you know, law enforcement, I would say in general, uh, you know, they, they try their best. They, they do their best for their mistakes, certainly. Um, unfortunately, you know, for me sitting here, this is the only case I care about. <laughs> I don't, I don't care about your other cases. And I would say just in general, um, and it's hard, I think, when you're in law enforcement, you know, to not become jaded, but do take a step back and realize, like, for example, on this particular evening, unusually for Texas, it was incredibly cold. The wind was blowing. This was not the time if someone had walked away from a car accident, uh, potentially injured. Um, you need a little bit of urgency just to ensure for the personal safety of that individual um, to find them in short order um, and, and to call out some people to help uh, in terms of that immediacy. Um, but, you know, it, yeah. it's, it is what it is. You can't go back in time, unfortunately. That's another good point. There's almost, you know, when you stack all these different considerations, there, there should almost be some type of scale where they're like, okay, we've got three significant risk factors here. We have to do things a certain way. But unfortunately, Ed, Ed and I run into this all the time. You get one law enforcement division in one area that does things this way. And on the other side of the country, it's handled a completely different way. Um, I even have sat in on a conversation. I've, I've been asked to help with a, a university on a, a class on criminology lately. And they had a police officer interviewed. And he was saying, I wish that we would standardize these procedures. I wish that there was like a national police standardization of these procedures. Um, so even they're thinking it as well. Yeah, um, we, have, we have, we've had issues on unfound where uh, a person will live in one city, will disappear in another city and the two police departments will play hot potato on which one is going to take the missing person's case. They don't want it. They want, well, there's no proof that the person was in our city. So he will send it to where he lived and they'll say, no, the car was found over here. You need to take it. And neither of them want to do it. Nobody's stepping up to take it. They're both looking to avoid responsibility. It happens all the time yeah. on the program. Yeah. Uh, we have a comment from a viewer on the first video that I released. Allison Tinglove. She says, as a Texas state student, I wish my university was doing more to bring this case to light. Besides our independent newspaper, the university has not said almost anything about the case. Such a shame. Once a bobcat, always a bobcat. Um, do you have any insight? Has the university reached out at all? Um, not to us personally. I know that they had, uh, particularly in that first week when they were doing all the searching, I remember seeing a Texas State University police car there that would come by and check on things and then leave. 
But um, as far as I know, um, in terms of the administration or whatnot, no, we've had zero contact. I would just think. I've had plenty of contact from from families um, because there's many of us who have children that go to Texas State. It's it's a large school. Uh, A lot of us live in Houston, the largest city in Texas. So, um, you know, there's there's more than a, a, a few thousand kids driving literally that same route and so i think for and and we have heard from many many of them um just you know because it does it it, you know it the thing about this case is it captures you i don't i don't care what state you're in there's many a college student coming home for christmas and when you hear child coming home from christmas from college and doesn't make it home as a parent, it's like you stop and you listen and you you wonder. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you're hitting on a, a point I actually wanted to raise. I know a lot of people in the Web Sleuths community were kind of confused by some comments that your wife Lisa had made um, in one of her early interviews about the case. Were you expecting him to actually come home that day? Uh, not that particular day. He hadn't told us yet. Um, so J- Jason had just finished finals. Um, and, uh, I know that, and, and I would say the same, I did the same and other, other of my kids in college, you know, you don't, sometimes you go directly home immediately after a final. Sometimes you take a day or so, maybe hang out with some friends or do something. He was still in that phase. So he was coming home as to which day it was, you know, we didn't care. One of the particulars that maybe kind of really truly answers the question is big sister uh, who's married, uh, lives in Chicago. Uh, she was coming home for Christmas. And so both the brothers, frankly, uh, both of whom are in college, uh, my two boys, um, were, were waiting till their sister came home <laughs> okay. to be there for when, when their sister comes home for the whole family. Until then, we were just mom and dad at home waiting for the kids. So, you know, that was true for, for both the boys. And I, I don't care. You know, I just want you, you know, when Christmas hadn't started for our family yet, for me as a working pastor, um, Christmas is a, is a busy season. So, you know, we told the kids, Hey, just, you know, come home when you're done with finals. Um, and, uh, you know, Christmas starts when, when the whole family's together and, and we weren't there yet. So. Um, so is that the family structure, a sister, two boys? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, how are they dealing with all this right now? Uh, how, I mean, you'd have to ask them directly. It's, it's hard. I mean, er- every day is, you know, I guess if sometimes if you try really hard, you can think it's not, it's not happening that, you know, I'm sitting here in, in, in my house right now. And if, if I, try to squint. I don't, I don't hear the kids because I would expect them to be in college and think that everything's okay. Um, but then, you know, it's not okay. Um, you've got a missing family member. So for them, you know, I mean, his brothers, uh, in the middle of electrical engineering classes, trying to focus on what is an incredibly difficult subject. Uh, his sister's uh, working for a living, trying to do her best for an employer. Um, that's a challenge when you have this incredibly difficult thing hanging over your head. Cause we, we literally don't know where Jason is. We don't know if he's alive. We don't know if he's hurting. 
that is an impossible impossible thing to not dwell on and have it just keep you awake at night yeah i think you're you're just making such a good point why it's so important to pull a team together and to know that there are people working on this uh in all kinds of different ways if you do this alone if you do this alone all i can say is don't yeah you can't it's not possible and 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 you know not everybody has got the same faith structure as me and all that okay find people to support you in whatever way you need to be supported because this is not in, uh, something that uh, you can even begin to handle alone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. A uh, comment from Annie Fritz for people saying that they don't know how or why he took the wrong turn. It's very difficult to see some roads in this area, especially if you wear glasses or contacts at night. I for sure miss turns and exits all the time driving at night because my eyesight isn't the best. Um, now, I know that we had some search efforts out there. We had Texas EquiSearch come out there. Is there talk of any newer search efforts happening? What's How's it moving on that front? Um, as I understand it, um, they are, they've just started a new search plan to go back and kind of, they've gone back and kind of reanalyzed um, especially based on this most recent evidence and trying to look at, you know, if Jason left the road, where could he have left the road? Where could he have been going? Uh, they're redoing the search. Um, and they're, they do, you know, they do multiple manners and means they'll bring out, whether it be a drone or a helicopter or a plane, they'll do an infrared search. They'll look for targets of interest maybe areas that haven't been searched or going back. And I think, uh, Ed, you touched on this, going back and looking over areas you've already covered, uh, right. but looking again yeah. with fresh eyes. Um, and then they'll send out teams. And uh, then I know particularly when they can get the volunteers who are trained to do this, uh, this Texas Search and Rescue has been doing the heavy lifting. EquiSearch has been involved also. Uh, but they'll bring out some teams and then search an area and then reanalyze and look to see what's their next best um, area of interest or, or whatever it might be. Do you, do you know what the uh, statistics were for the, those first searches? Not necessarily maybe airplane, of course, you could cover many, many square miles, but actually people walking on the ground, how many people involved? And do you know how many feet or square miles they covered how many miles did they go in each direction from the car do you know those particular statistics uh well i know in terms of uh volume depending on what time you were talking you probably had upwards of 50 people uh plus to i mean at any minimum you know when they bring out a search team they bring out at least a dozen or so. I mean, you know, they don't, it doesn't help to, I mean, I guess it's helpful to bring out two people, but you know, I think it's, it's almost right. you know, a couple right. of people doesn't, doesn't really get it. And, and they've used dogs, people, horses, ATVs, drones. Uh, they have a new drone. That's like a mini predator drone that they've used helicopters and fixed wing aircraft all in, in different searches at different times. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is quite a few square miles uh, were covered once again because of plan. Yeah, I think, I think in the range of uh, five to 10 miles in terms of radius, in terms of okay. looking at different okay. options. All right. Great. 
And have they been pretty having good luck with land accessibility? We know sometimes there might be private property in the area and those owners aren't always helpful. Um, the people in Caldwell County um, have been amazing. I think I've met most of the landowners for about the 40 mile radius. And to my knowledge, every single, not only have they opened up their land, they individually took took part. Uh, one of the issues, and you probably saw it in all your comments, this is an area that has oil and gas in it. Um, there's This is actually sitting on an oil field, a uh, gas field that's been around since the 20s. Uh, there are uncapped wells. Just want to make clear to you, to our readers and listeners, there's only about, an uh, uncapped well is only about an 18-inch hole in this area for the types of wells they do. Uh, so it's not, you know, uh, and there's not um, un wells in terms of water wells, but every landowner in that area, to my knowledge, because I talked with them directly, um, have gone personally on their property, because every landowner knows their property best. Yeah. A lot of people run cattle, so they know where the thickets are, where the holes are, where the cracks and the ravines, where, where you know, an animal or a person could, could get lost or could burrow in or something like that. They personally have gone on their land uh, in the creeks and, and the dry ravines and stuff uh, to, to look and to see if they could find Jason. And they still are. I got a call yesterday from someone who lives in that area who um, was uh, looking for more information so they could know better as to uh, where to look and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, a very big thank you to everyone that's helping on that front. Um, that's that's the good people, to hear. I mean, you know, yeah. the, the people in, in Caldwell County and, and all that, I mean, I'm sure there's bad apples everywhere, but um, the, the landowners around there, I've I been really uh, very, because um, they care too. Because part of this whole aspect is whether it be, you know, is there a bad actor or something, they care. Um, they want to they want to know for their community and for their safety because, you know, you know where the intersection is and all that. This happened, could have had something happen in Luling or all the way out to Salt Flat Road. This is only about maybe three miles from, from the center of Luling. Right, right. So um, do you know what actually prompted the media release from the sheriff? Do you feel like it was, you know, pressure from the comments you were making publicly? What what brought this about? I wish we could see it happen more. So I'm trying to understand it. No, in, in a very simple manner. Uh, this is a very uh, unusual and confusing case. Uh, it can be everything from a murder to a simple um, tragedy and disappearance. We, we don't know the answer to that. Um, there are so many missing pieces. I mean, literally, we have a timeline of, of 67 minutes. We don't know. And, of course, anything happened after that, after the car was found. We don't know also. Right. So we have a lot of answers unknown. But this feels like one of those things that's a ball of yarn, but it only requires one strand to unravel the whole thing. Uh, and, and the reason they're, they're doing it, and this is an unusual thing, not just releasing information, but releasing to this detail, to a timeline, and all the photos, and all the uh, different elements. So the, maybe the one person that knows something was present or saw something might come forward to give us the answers we need. It's, it's as simple as that, that uh, just we're... And that's why I'm talking to you now to try to get as much 
exposure as possible, that that one person who knows something um, will come forward and share that information so we can have answers. If you happen to be that one person, we've had the number on the screen the whole time. We've also got contact information in the description box below. So please <laughs> find it in your heart to help Kent and his family and uh, find the answers about what happened to Jason. Okay, so let's get to this media release. Ed is going to help me by kind of taking over for reading this. I've got some map control and other stuff that we're going to do on this side to uh, bring the visuals to you guys. And um, Kent, feel free to stop us at any point if there's any interjections that you want to make about this as we're going through it. So, uh, Ed, take it away. Okay. All right. From the Caldwell, Caldwell County Sheriff's Office for immediate release. The Caldwell County Sheriff's Office continues the search for 21-year-old Jason Landry, who is considered a missing person. The Caldwell County Sheriff's Office has been partnered with the Texas Rangers and a team of retired federal agents slash private investigators in attempting to locate Jason Landry, who has been missing since Sunday, December 13th, 2020. The Caldwell County Sheriff's Office has utilized and will continue to utilize assistance from other agencies, including the Caldwell County District Attorney's Office, Texas State University Police, San Marcos Police Department, Texas Department of Public Safety, and TexSAR, Texas Search and Rescue. Investigators have now gained access to most of, uh, to most of Jason's phone and computer data. Investigators are still waiting for some search warrants from social media slash tech companies to be returned and will immediately process that data upon receipt. We are asking the public's assistance with any information which may further the investigation. Investigators believe that Jason left his apartment in San Marcos at 10.55 p.m. on 12 on December 13th, 2020, with the intent to travel to the Missouri City, Texas area where his parents reside. At 11.05 p.m., Jason was driving his vehicle on Highway 80 and passed under I-35 in San Marcos. All right. Hold on a second, Ed. Uh, we're we're going to jump to that on the map real quick just to okay. try to follow the path a little bit. So uh, Texas State University San Marcos is what is loading right now. Um, they're noting the next ping they have for him at the 80 and 35 overpass which is loading up here. There we go. All right, what's next, Ed? Jason continued to drive south on Highway 80, entering Caldwell County at 11.07 p.m. At 11.11 p.m., Jason was in Martindale, Texas, continuing south on Highway 80. At 11.15 p.m., Jason passed over uh, SH 130 on Highway 80, at 11.17 p.m., he was in Fentress, entering Prairie Lee at 11.19 p.m. and the area of Stairtown at 11.21 p.m. At 11.24 p.m., Jason entered the city of Luling on Highway 80. As Jason went through the intersection of Hackberry Street, where Highway 80 becomes Austin Street, Jason quit using the Waze application and began using the Snapchat application on his cell. Okay, hold on a second there, Ed. Let's um, okay. take a look at that location real quick. So we've got the him entering Luling, and I've kind of marked it at the city limit out here at 1124. 
and then ways off and Snapchat on. So first of all, we have confirmation. I know Kent from very early on, you were saying Jason uses ways. And if it would, you know, basically tell him to drive into a wall, he would, he would follow it. Right. He was very consistent mm-hmm. ways user. Uh, so we get confirmation. Yes. Ways is indeed being used, but for some reason, pretty early on in the trip, I mean, he's not even what a quarter of the way home yet. And ways get, oh. yeah, ways get shut off. Uh, and then he starts using Snapchat at this particular intersection. Um, kind of strange. And then fairly soon after that, Ed, go ahead and continue. Do they mention the end uh, of just, just to be clear, the, that where you're showing on your, on the map is not the intersection we're talking about. Okay. Scroll, scroll up to your left. Let's see. Where is, doesn't look like, where's Austin street where it comes into where you would turn by the first Baptist church. Do you remember the street name on that intersection? It's Austin uh, is what he's on. Well, let's see. Hang on. I'll look at my picture. Yeah. Cause I know it's the next part in the, uh, release says Jason continued on Austin street to the intersection with us highway 183 Magnolia Avenue. Right. Yeah. So this is where that's the intersection. Okay. This is what they've identified as the end of data where his data signal stops. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Jason continued on Austin street to the intersection with us highway 183 Magnolia Avenue. Okay. It is believed that Jason continued straight through that intersection, continuing on to East Austin. At this intersection, Jason's digital footprint essentially stops. It is believed that he continued on East Austin onto Spruce Street, which turns into Salt Flat Road. Jason's vehicle is found abandoned in the 2300 block of Salt Flat Road at 31 minutes after midnight on December 14th, 2020. Um, so Kent, any insight or additional information that you have about that route? Well, there's a couple of things. And if you want, you can pull, um, do you want to go back to uh, show me on Google Earth the uh, intersection so people understand? Now, first of all, people have talked about, they miss, this is Jason's first semester at Texas State. Um, he transferred in uh, to uh, hopefully to get a degree in sound recording technology. Texas State has a great program there. But this is his first semester. So probably, and this is the way he travels home, I, I'm not 100% certain. So he's probably come home during the semester. Uh, he, I know he came home for Thanksgiving and probably one, maybe two other times during the course of the semester. Um, so he's only driven through this intersection a few times. I don't recall him ever driving it at nighttime because normally, uh, you know, like most college students, you, whatever you, whenever you're done on Friday, you normally come and you probably come through here in the evening, but this was a very dark, um, night with no light. Uh, actually give me the intersection looking towards East Austin, if you will go on, you know, go down and. And look, because part of the thing, no, uh, zooming in, zooming okay. in, like if you were sitting in the car at the intersection, just to be clear, 
you can tell from the roads where your main road is. He should take a right at this intersection. Right. right. You're sitting there looking at First Baptist. This is not, uh, uh, you know, you can see, just look at the intersection. Show me where the sign that shows you I tend to your right. There actually is a sign. Yeah. <laughs> it's right there. That's it. There's no, you know, this is not. A uh, large city intersection with a flashing light or something that really tells you, hey, if you want to hit I-10, turn right here. This is a, yeah. a city intersection, and if you if even you the street it, light is kind of like it's it's not lighting up that sign. The street light's blowing out right. towards the street. Yeah, uh, and actually, speaking of the street lights, um, that light might have been flashing that night. Right. Uh, they were having a malfunction in the signal lights in the city. They're okay. still trying to ascertain which one, but but some of the people local have said that that light was flashing. So unless you, in the middle of the night at 1130, saw that, knew it, recognized it, how many of us would make that mistake? So sure. I know there are people saying, oh, I've driven that for, you know, he should have driven that a hundred times. No, you know, not in this intersection. So could it be as simple as he missed this term? Without question. Right. John, maybe you can back up maybe like 100 feet on that and see if there's that actual sign before you get to the intersection. Maybe go backwards, you know, in reverse. Yeah, let's do that. Let's drive Just back a little. Just see. Um, turn around and go back. These yeah. aren't, you know, these are mm -hmm. a small town. Yeah. There is a, all right. Um, so, yeah, I'm not seeing much else for signs there except yeah, for this one, which, yeah, it only has town names on it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's really say, weird. It doesn't, that, say, it doesn't say Houston. I'll, I'll just, in case y'all right. Yeah, yeah the 183. I tend to the, to the right. Yeah. Shouldn't that sign be over here? <laughs> you know, like just to be helpful? Shouldn't it be on this side of the, uh, wow. Mm -hmm. Fairly easy to miss that. And then of course, after he misses that, we know that we've got that next location, uh, further down where Austin kind of ends. But there is a, a pretty big question here, which is what happened to Waze? Why is that shut off at this point? And then why does his data stop back at that intersection? Um, and that's, you know, I wish I knew for certainty the answer. Yeah. I found his phone. I had a locator on his phone, you know, you know, find your friend type of thing Yeah, we do for the kids. So I knew where his phone was. It was sitting in his car, in the car at the, the lot where the tow truck put it, uh, when I got the call, that's why I was confused. And his phone was in that very annoying place between your driver's seat and your armrest down in the bottom like at the seat rail so it could be as simple as because he was on ways and uh someone called him on snapchat you know like a few blocks back just like a couple of minutes he could have dropped the phone and it slid down um and was looking for the phone this is uh in the upper right hand corner is a, is a city park mm -hmm. um you know, he could have gone through that intersection, pulled over, stopped to look and try to find the phone. Someone could have seen him, could have had some interchange or whatever. He could have been carjacked sitting at that intersection for all I know. Yeah. Um, 
Do we know who he was Snapchatting with? Has anybody come forward to say, yeah, I was Snapchatting with Jason that night that he was coming home? Has anybody come forward or was anybody expecting a message from him on Snapchat that night? Uh, I don't know 100 percent sure. I know he's been Snapchatting with a couple of people, um, uh, maybe with one of his uh, friends. I know was Snapchatting with him that evening. I don't know if it was at those particular calls, mm-hmm. just checking on him or something like that. Um, but, you know, it could be as simple as he dropped his phone and that's why he never used his phone again. Uh, you know, a lot of people are saying, why didn't he carry it away from the scene? Probably because it was in that most annoying area that's incredibly hard to find. Yeah. Um, the thing yeah. I'm wondering is if that would actually cut off his service, you know, it falling between that that crack in the well, seat. Well, as I, as I understand it for both Waze and Snapchat, if you're not actually sending and receiving, like Waze will automatically ping, but Waze, if you're not using it, doesn't. Okay. Um, Waze stayed on for a period of time, but without pinging because it wasn't active. It wasn't, you know, pulled up on the screen. Right. Um, and then it shuts off at a certain period of time. Uh, Snapchat, I know very little about. And that's one of the things we haven't gotten complete data from Snapchat. Uh, the warrants are still out. That's one of the apps they haven't gotten data from. Yeah. Um, that they, they, you know, if he's not Snapchatting, it's not pinging. So uh, we simply don't know. We just, that's where whoever that little silver or whatever car, whatever him sitting right there at that intersection is the last relatively certain thing that we know. What happened from this moment at 1124, I think off the top of my head or 1126, one of those two, uh, for the next 67 minutes, we absolutely don't know. Was he alone in the car? Was he carjacked? Was someone after him? Did he drive around wandering? You know, and that's kind of the frustration is, well, why didn't he just pull over and find his phone and turn ways on and say, oh, idiot, turn around, you know, take a right turn, take a right turn, get back on your map. I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, none but of we st- But we still don't know anything about Snapchat. We know that the application was opened, but we don't know if it was somebody sending him a message, who, of course, somebody who I think would have come forward by now, or he was planning to send somebody a message on Snapchat and never got to. Certainly. And that's, that's, okay. You know, and I I would say if there's one thing for, I would say for any parent who has a child and who has a cell phone, work out a deal with them because I I wish this were true. Because when we got the phone, I had the phone literally within hours of this accident. I don't know Jason's code. Mm -hmm. The only way we've been able to get limited access is we were able to get into his computer. And by that, it's a trusted device so you can get partial information. I would say to any parent, as a child with a cell phone, work out a deal with them. I'm all a believer in personal privacy and I try to be as fair as I can with children and privacy. Give your access codes to a third party, a brother, a sister, a grandparent, stick it in a drawer, whatever you need to do, work out that deal so that in an emergency like this, that if we can get your phone, we can immediately put in the code and get all the information that is necessary because this is the questions we have. We don't need to have these questions if we could have that simple singular piece of information. Um, You know, I wish it were true in this case so we could have this answer as to what happened 
and you know your phone is your life nowadays yeah but please do this for your own peace of mind for your child's peace of mind and your access to your computer uh in case of that because law enforcement needs to be able to access inf this information because we're going to be waiting about 18 months for the warrants to be returned for that data wow because is, big, is, tech, big tech yeah. doesn't care i mean they don't care mm -hmm. you know so uh we won't have the potentially we won't have those answers when a family could have those answers literally in seconds with that one piece of data that's my public service announcement from a grieving dad no, it's so a, it's what a you're one. saying is there's there's some sort of uh, pin like a, like we have for our ATM or something like that. And is it one of these situations where if you try to just start typing one, 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 two, 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 that it will just completely lock out? Yes. After like three tries or something like that. I mean, I literally had his phone and I could see his Snapchats and his Instagrams, you know, popping up on the screen. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I kept his phone charged until I turned mm -hmm. it over to law enforcement because I know. Mm -hmm. I'm, I know how this works. It's like, yeah. you know, if we but had, you know, those whatever four or six digits and you know, they're, you know, and you know, what, tump, mm -hmm. tap it in, you could say, okay, here's who he was Snapchatting with. Here's what they said. Let me call that person to find out, hey, you know, you're Snapchatting with Jason. Was he okay? Was there, did he say something? Did he say, hey, there's a guy running up to my car or did he, did he drop the phone in the, you know, the, the, the call got disconnected. You were in the middle of a call. All of those things we could have the simple answer to with those simple digits. And I would say for any any parent and, and for anybody, I don't care, you know, for anybody who carries a phone, ha have someone who knows can has that that you trust that can tell, you know, if you get a call like we did at 2 a.m. in the morning that they can access that phone say, hey, we've got his phone. Do you know the code? Whoever it is in whatever way that works for you, make sure that happens. That that That's the simplest thing that you can do that can make a difference in literally your life, can save your life and the life of your family. Yeah, very good advice. And that's obviously a big part of why we do interviews like this to try to get insight to help other families that are in situations and hopefully avoid situations like this. So really appreciate you bringing that up, Kent. Um, Ed, let's continue with the release. Okay. Uh, the approximate 67 minute window between the last data footprint at Austin and Magnolia and the discovery of the crashing is what investigators are focusing on. Jason's phone had cell signal and was powered on. Investigators are still trying to determine why it wasn't, it doesn't appear to have been used since the area of Magnolia Avenue and Austin Street. Jason's vehicle was found abandoned, lights on with the keys in the ignition and the front passenger side door locked. The vehicle collision is a single vehicle collision, most likely from overcorrecting on the gravel road and spinning off the roadway. Hold on a second, Ed. So that's one important clarification because from the news stories, it was hard to tell. And it seemed like they were saying that the vehicle was completely locked up. But essentially, it's just the passenger's side door that's locked and the driver's side door is unlocked. Right, Kent? Yeah, I can answer that because I accessed his door at 7 a.m. at the tow lot to get his phone. I didn't have the other set of keys. I was an idiot and didn't bring the spare set of keys. Uh, the keys were in the car. Um, the driver's side door was unlocked. Okay. I don't know about the other doors being unlocked uh, or locked or unlocked, but I just walked up to the driver's side door and opened it 
Uh, and then I looked and grabbed his phone. Um, and I hit the button to, I can't remember if I hit the button to unlock the other doors or not, but I was able to access all four doors at that point. So, so this would be understanding it's a crash. This would be the normal state you would expect to find the doors though, right? If he was in a crash door was probably locked from him driving. He opens the driver's side, which unlocks it. And then it's left unlocked. Yeah. I mean, the normal, you know, this, I mean, it's not a new car by any means. It's an old car. But, you know, it's like any other, once you start driving, your your, your other three doors will, uh, will lock uh, right. once you start driving. Okay. okay. All right, Ed. The rear, the rear driver's side corner made initial contact with a tree on the east side of the roadway, propelling the front driver's side into another tree and barbed wire fence. There's no evidence that any other vehicle or outside force was involved in the collision. All the evidence collected leads investigators to be confident that the contact with the trees and fence line was the only contact the vehicle sustained. The rear window of the vehicle was broken as a result of the impact with a tree. The volunteer firefighter who discovered Jason's abandoned vehicle did not enter the vehicle. The trooper who responded to the scene almost an hour later also did not enter the vehicle. The vehicle was towed from the scene to an impound yard where the next morning, Jason's father, the registered owner of the vehicle, uh, entered the vehicle through the unlocked driver's side door and discovered Jason's cell phone between the driver's seat and the center console. It is unknown if the phone fell as Jason was operating the vehicle um, through the intersection of Austin Street and Magnolia Avenue or during the con- or during the con- the collision. Jason's father collected the phone and attempted to locate the scene of the collision. Upon arrival to the area, approximately 900 feet from the collision scene, Jason's father found articles of his son's clothing. In parentheses, shirt socks, shorts, underwear, slide sandals, and a wristwatch, uh, close parentheses, in the roadway. Okay, so hold on a second. I didn't realize this. So you're the one that finds his clothing and it's not until the next morning? So, yeah, I mean, that's one of those steps that you're talking about. You can't go back and and do it again. But that night, I mean, admittedly, we've got a decent distance, 900 feet. But in an area like that, no one noticed, hey, there's a bunch of stuff on the side of the road here as we're heading towards this accident. Yeah, I mean, I've got it on video. I mean, yeah. Okay. Were these items north of the car uh, wreck or south south of the car wreck? So it would be south heading towards the wreck and then south of there heading like if you were heading back, back to, the toward movie, the, sa- the opposite direction have the clothing items um uh, so going back toward lulling yes okay and you know i found those well, let's see based on the picture uh it was in the morning some i got there about 5 a.m uh, about 7 a.m. is when the tow lot opened that I could get him to unlock it so I could go and get his phone because that was one of the first things I uh, wanted. Um, so it was sometime probably about the first close, you know, all that probably about six ish because it was starting to get light when I saw it as I found, I finally found where the scene was. I had to call the officer. My wife had to call him and wake him up to find out where the accident was so I could. Cause I was driving up and down um, the, the adjacent highway thinking it was there. Um, yeah. And then she called the officer, woke him up. Kinda, okay. Where is it? And he told me the name of the road. She looked it up 
and directed me over there. And that's where I, I was driving down the road looking for Jason and I see clothes in the middle of the roadway. And did it look when like you say the, clothes, in the roadway? Yeah, please, John, please. Uh, please. I was just going to say the, the, the state of the clothing, was it like they were thrown out of the car while it was driving up or did it seem like they were all in one location? Like he had taken them off after he got out. Um, they weren't lying. Well, I mean, I can show you on video if you'd like, but, um, the, um, no, they weren't, they were not in one pile. They were, they were near or separate. The watch was under his t-shirt and then a few feet forward would be his slides and then socks and then shorts and then underwear, um, all within, you know, the, that trail would be less than a hundred yards for sure. Uh, certainly, but they're not in like one pile. I mean, it could be everything from, you know, and I wasn't sure. I mean, did he shove the, because his backpack was pretty much almost full with his game, his PlayStation and his headphones and all his gaming gear. Right. Well, he had a military bag and uh, his fish, uh, his little beta fish in, a, in a, the plastic glass that he travels with it in. So he could have shoved clothes right in the top or those probably were the clothes he was wearing, which then is one of the abnormal things on this. It's like, why would you take the clothes off when it's 30 degrees and windy? So we don't know for sure if those were the clothes he was wearing. Not 100%. I know uh, based on like, if you look at the picture of Jason right in in my bottom left, that was taken right before he came home. That reddish shirt appears to be the shirt he was wearing. I mean, he was wearing it in the video. Could he have changed clothes? Could he, after the accident, could he put on heavier clothes if he had it with him? Hypothetically, yes, that's possible. Um, Now, if I were to do that, I would put it over my T-shirt instead of taking my T-shirt and my shorts off. But, you know, hypothetically, is it possible? Yes. And was Um, the hat found? I don't... I don't know. I don't think I saw it or found it. Okay. I never found the backpack. Uh, The officer picked up the backpack and he had that with him. So maybe he picked up the baseball cap, but I did not. Okay. So when you say in the roadway, does that mean if another car had been going down that road that they would have run over those things? Yeah. I mean, you say his plays the PlayStation in the backpack. The backpack's right in the road. So once again, if another car came along, they would have had to have gone around it. Otherwise, they would have just hit it and destroyed, I guess, a PlayStation or whatever else. Yes. I mean, you know, and I, and I don't know. Did they show, uh, did they release any images that showed yes. where it was? But it was in the road. So if there's a car... That's yeah. the uh, accident. I took that picture. Yeah, which this picture is bringing up a whole other conversation. We'll oh, get to if, that. If but let me. In, in that picture, that's the act where the accident occurred. You're actually looking south towards Luling around that curve that you can see in the distance. Yeah. That's where the close was found. And then a little bit past the close, if there's an opening, because you can see right where your uh, little hand is mm-hmm. there's a uh, you can see where the there's a cut in uh there's some gas tank oil and field gas tanks there and so if you go around that curve you'll see where his clothes was and then a little bit further to the left is another access point with cattle guard 
where they tra they tracked his scent. I do believe there's a body cam image that I can find here um, of the bag. Let's see. Yeah. And if, you know, I did not ever see the bag until he returned. That's the shirt that he was wearing, we believe. Yeah. And in the photos, there's a few of those photos in here as well. You can see it's definitely the same shirt. It's got the same logo on the front. Um, we've got a little bit of blood. And this is the only spot of blood that is found, right? Or there's a small spot on the shirt as well. There's another spot on the tag on his shorts. Okay. <clears throat> that is about the same size. Okay. And, <clears throat> and, and this is. He, the car ended up against a barbed wire fence. Um, yeah, that's where he said, I mean, I've, I have the video image of me when I came up on him and, and videoed my um, picking them up and where they were uh, in a little bit better light. But um, the, the blood is, if I had to guess, if Jason was against the barbed wire fence and pushed his door open, you can see on the car door, you can see scratches from the barbed wire. That's probably him trying to open his, forcing the door open. And trying to shimmy along the car to get out and you could easily you know scrape the barbed wire and draw just a pinprick of blood um yeah. like that that would you know right at your waist which would be where a strain of barbed wire would be because it's you know, bar, you know fence it's about waist time yeah. was this tow company from luling i mean where did yeah. where did the tow truck come from, from that luling. came and picked up from so luling. i guess then we're to believe that this tow truck went up that road and saw that stuff on the road and just didn't think that was strange. Went and got the car, turned around, went back the opposite direction and still left that stuff in the middle of the road and didn't think, well, that's kind of weird. I, I can't I can't speak as to that. In fact, I think if you actually look at his shorts, they, mm -hmm. they look dusty. Yeah. Uh, I could from being run over by a car or his other items. You know, I, I just I. I can't okay. speak to the state of miners to, to the choice. Okay. Well, um, I could see him missing it one way, but both ways with tow truck driver, when he's just going to a car wreck and sees these things in the middle of the road, does it stop or, you know, put it all together? Okay. Yeah. And um, I just want to go back to that photo. So you took the photo of the, um, the tire trails the next morning, right? Yes. Okay. So, are we sure that these are the car's tire trails? Because wouldn't the truck have come out here and recovered the car? Is this the truck and the car? Very well could be. I, I At first, I had thought that those were like the front wheels and the rear wheels sliding backward, uh, sideways. But probably more likely, those could very easily be one set of those as a tow truck and one set of those is, is the car. Uh, the car had flat tire on the front and the rear so if i'm and i am by no means an accident investigator yeah. if i'm looking at him i'm counting them left to right one two three four if you look at number three it's a heavy impression with no uh change that might be the front uh that might be a, a blown out tire because it would i would assume it would ride heavier kent the the question i'm wondering uh, going back to something i brought up before about you know, the items in the roadway is that was this like what I would call old school tow truck where the car is like back ends up and two wheels are on the ground? Or was this some sort of flatbed like I think we're more used to in the 21st century? No, this is um, the tow truck place is actually a diesel service center for 18 wheeler, you know, large trucks. So all of the only tow trucks I saw were all 18 wheeler old school wheels on the ground. 
um, okay. types of tow trucks. These were not flatbed, you know, passenger car tow trucks. These were capable of yanking an 18-wheeler uh, out of a ditch, which is probably why the rear end of the car was so damaged because just the, the power of those, those particular right. Because I was wondering, you know, talking about the, all of these uh, items that are strewn over, like you said, 900 feet uh, south of where the car was found, it, it's once again a little hard for me to imagine the tow truck driver drove in around those things, especially with a bigger truck like you're describing twice in the way in and on the way out and just said, oh, that's just stuff in the roadway. I'm just going to leave it there. And I, I wonder if it those items could have been outside the car, maybe um, – he went in there, your son went in there, got those items and had put them there. And then something happened. And then when the tow truck driver comes along, he tows the truck out, sees these items, puts them in the back of the bed. And then as he leaves, these things start to fall out. Uh, you know, I'm trying to find a, a theory here that gets around the idea that he just drove around all those items and, and didn't give a dang about them. I guess that's what yeah. I'm trying to do. Thinking about that, I'd say two things. Number one, that would change the entire kind of conjecture. Uh, number two, I don't know if uh, the tow truck driver has been interviewed, but I'm going to send an email to the investigating officer to check. Okay. It is possible there was a flatbed trailer that I just hadn't seen whenever I've been there. I just haven't seen that particular tow truck and maybe they have one. Okay. I know it's a people service center, so I'm sure they don't have I, you know, the ones I saw were the 18 wheelers. Um, the one that would thing that would militate against it is the clothes. His, his watch was actually lying flat, like by flat, I mean like flat. Like that, mm -hmm. as if the placed there, with as if placed there. Over it. If it blew okay. out, I would expect it to be, you know, okay. elsewhere. So, but, you know, that would be, it, I would sleep better at night knowing that meant, uh, well, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's the clothes, you know, why would my son take his clothes off? Um, outside of a head injury or something else. Um, I, that's the part that hurts. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about this photo. Obviously, this photo has created the most conversation. Um, there's a lot of people that are saying this is two vehicles. This shows that, you know, someone was chasing him. But considering the timing of this photo being the next morning, knowing that the truck had already been there, removed his vehicle, um, I'm also not a, an accident investigator, but these tracks, I, I, I'm not convinced that they're a vehicle sliding. Like the tire path looks pretty, pretty straightforward on them to me. It does kick over to the side of the road. So I, I can get why you might think it was his car coming the other direction if he hit the side of the road and that started his slide. Mm -hmm. um, but also his vehicle winds up the back looks like it takes most of the force. And I don't know that I'm seeing enough of a turn if this is one vehicle that's laying out these tracks. I'm Yeah, I'm really feeling like this might be more related to the tow, but we now have the sheriff putting this out in the new pack of information. So it seems like the sheriff is at least considering that these are the tracks to show the accident. Um, so yeah, a lot of... This is where his car hit because, I mean, I took this picture. I also have a video of it. Yeah. I mean... Uh, this area is rural. I mean, I can tell you in the time I was driving down Salt Flat Road, like three miles, uh, at this was at five in the morning, that same time. Um, I had 
multiple deer, even a coyote run in front of the car. So it could be something as simple as, and you can see a curve. It could be anything from, you know, maybe taking the curve a little bit too deep, you overcorrect and you go the other way, you know, that causes it to spin. It could be uh, inattention, um, which leads to the same result, or it could be a deer running across, or it could be running from someone who's chasing after you. All of those are possible given the scenario. I mean, the the tire tracks, and that's part of the frustration of not actually having um, a proper accident investigation of a scene. Yeah. And, you know, I know we live in a world of limited police resources. You know, if this were a obvious death accident, if his body were dead in that car, we all know what that would look like. They cordon it off. They do the full accident scene. But if it's not that, this is what you get sometimes. Kent, how much farther is the tree from this edge of the road? Um, the tree that the back yeah. hit. The well on the left hand side is of as the picture as you look. Um, I mean, you. I think did they release the scene of the car, or the picture from the car, of the car mm. sitting there in the roadway? Mm, not that I saw. Only in the impound yard. My share screen. Um. Uh, I don't know. Uh, if you can email it, is it just a photo? If you can just email it to me real quick. I could bring it up on screen. Um, so the rear end of the car, uh, the left driver's side, that larger tree, you, and you can see a little scrape mm-hmm. of where the it impacted. That, I believe, is, is where the car hit hardest and then probably swung around to come up against. That's a barbed wire fence. Um, yeah. And then is this facing the cars now facing south? It's now facing south. The front if, if you were to drive facing the way it was coming from. So it yeah, is a total south. 180 that has to happen for the car to wind up like that. Yeah. It's just the question now is did it did it make the rest of that 180 in the grass because well I I can tell you uh one of the questions the back window is bashed out. Right. Um, that almost certainly came from those trees. So probably it was going rear first, because if you actually look at the picture and, and, or if you look at the car in real life, you can actually see all the brand broken off branches sitting inside the car. Um, so probably it was going rear end and, you know, those trees have overhanging limbs that intruded, broke the window, broke off. And then the car hits that tree and then slings sideways. So, and that's part of, you know, the mechanism potentially of injury is that with that slinging and, and hard impact kind of side rear, he could have very easily hit his head on the uh, pillar and have a concussion or worse. Or the window. Yeah. Either yeah. one. Yeah, that's the abrupt stop. Yeah. yeah. Makes me think, I think, it, I think it was Ed, uh, uh, Liam Neeson's wife. The, the, you know, Natasha that. Richardson. Yep. Yeah, I talk about that uh, situation often. She got you know, skiing. She thought she was fine. And three hours later, she probably had at least a concussion. Yeah. And certainly was in shock. Yep. But you Natasha can see Richardson. the car's rear end being relatively intact. And of course, the picture mm-hmm. that you just show looks quite different. And that is the, where it hit the tree. And you saw the wood and all that. Yeah, thank you for sending us that. All right, uh, Ed, let's continue with that release. Okay. See what else we can shake out from this. 
Okay. Those clothes were collected by his father and later released to investigators who have processed those clothes for any evidentiary findings. A single blood smear was detected on the clothes. This blood spot was small and was not indicative of serious bodily injury. It is possible that an injury causing the blood spot occurred as Jason was exiting the vehicle and came into contact with a barbed wire fence or foliage. Upon a review of the trooper's body and dash cameras from initial response to the crash scene, investigators know that approximately 900 feet from the collision scene, the following articles belonging to Jason were discovered in the roadway. A backpack, a ball cap, uh, a plastic bag of personal toiletries, and a tumbler with a deceased beta fish in it. So they did note the ball cap there. These findings were north of the clothing uh, recovered the next morning by Jason's father. Jason's backpack contained his wallet, a usable amount of marijuana, a laptop computer, gaming equipment, and a few personal effects. Okay. Hold up. Hold up, Ed. Hold up a second. Okay. So, yeah, I just want to address that because I know that was one of the big points that everyone was um, talking about in terms of the drag, the, the bag full of drug comment. So this is what they actually wound up finding there. Um, pretty obvious to me that we're looking at personal use. This is this is an amount for personal use. You know, that theory that this is some type of major drug run that he was on or he was meeting up with someone. Um, I don't I don't know. We've got we've got a handful of uh, joints here. Uh, CJ Sleuth left a comment. I have a grandson in his first year of college. He's a Christian, but he's human. He makes mistakes. Please, if you have a heart at all, don't degrade Jason. He sounds like a fine young man trying to get an education and spend time with family and friends, praying for a good result. Also praying the family get information. Uh, Kent, I just wanted to give you a moment. Did you have any comments about this aspect of it? You know, I'm no saint. Uh, I'm no prude. If there's any time in life where we all should have the opportunity to make stupid mistakes, try things, think stupid ideas, and learn from them and grow up, it's college. Yeah, I, I'm I'm sorry. I, I don't know the percentage of how many college students experiment with with marijuana, but at least from my personal experience as a college student, it's a high percentage. Do we learn from that? Do we grow? Do we mature? Yes. Um, I'm no one to throw a, a rock um, into a glass house. You know, does it hurt me as dad to know that my son uses marijuana? Uses marijuana? Yes. Do I hope that after 21, he would grow up and grow out of it like the overall majority of adults do? Yes. And I would expect that to happen. Um, you know, frankly, given COVID, given the statistics, given what I know, basically, here's the deal. You go to a new college campus with great hope and great excitement for hope. Finally, that you're given the chance to do and to grow and everything, you know, you're on the way to wherever you hope. The entire campus gets shut down. You don't even get to go to class. You don't get to meet anyone nothing 
like that is happening. You're stuck literally in a single room apartment for months at a time, multiple COVID lockdowns. Would it not be rational to think that any college student might smoke a few joints? I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. Does it, does it hurt me to know that? Yes. I wish it were not true, but it's understandable. And that's the part that I guess the people who are making these, um, what I find to be hurtful and, and, you know, that's the whole thing with the radio station, you know, the TV station making this some huge thing. I mean, like one of the theories floating around that Jason was a drug mule and carrying drugs in his car. And I actually, I was involved because the next morning I went and removed all those drugs. So I've been called a lot of things. I've never been called a drug dealer before. Um, I just, it, it's, it is part of this case, but it's not the important part. It's yeah. not the part that matters. I, I would just put this down to do most college students experiment with where, marijuana. My son's like most college students. He's no better or no worse. Um, have a little bit of grace and just a little bit of sense. And let's focus on what's important. Yeah. And this is not important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The uh, the only other question I have about it is, and we're not hearing this from law enforcement, and I don't know if you have more insight into this. Was there any evidence found that he was actually smoking while he was driving? I don't know. Um, You know, because the way he's he's using these, there's a filter on these. I mean, there would certainly be something that was left over, I guess, unless he's you know, flinging it out the window or something. But I would like to think that they would be able to tell when they came. I mean, there's no, there's nothing in his car. There's no ash. There's no roach clip. There's no, right. There's nothing that, you know, there's not a half smoked joint in the car. Um, All I can say is, I mean, from what I saw, but you know, obviously the forensics is, is might tell us different, but I, as far as I know, there's no active smoking going on while in the car. Yep. Yep. Okay. I think we've certainly given that enough time, and that's probably all the time that anyone should have given it. Um, Let's go ahead and continue, Ed. Any report stating that the backpack was filled, quote unquote, filled with narcotics is inaccurate. The small amount of marijuana has been seized and is being held. There remains a possibility that the marijuana was combined with an unknown hallucinogenic substance. Those findings are pending. It is believed that the clothing discovered in the roadway was the clothing Jason was wearing prior to the collision occurring. There is no indication that the clothing was removed under duress or threat. There was cold weather during the time Jason is believed to have gone missing, with a low temperature being recorded around 36 degrees Fahrenheit with a high of 43 degrees Fahrenheit. On Monday, Jason's father received the backpack from DPS in parentheses without the seized marijuana and released released the phone to DPS troopers when efforts began to access the device and data. DPS continued being lead on the search and initial investigative efforts until Friday, December 18th, 2020, when the Caldwell County Sheriff's Office assumed lead. This office has been working with various outside agencies outside agencies and organizations since assuming lead investigative responsibility. Jason's vehicle has been processed for DNA and any blood evidence with the assistance of the Texas, Texas Rangers. 
There was no evidence of blood inside the vehicle. Uh, Kent, on, on that DNA testing, do we know what items they're testing for DNA in the car specifically? I do not know. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious about that because, I, I mean, obviously, we don't have a lot of blood based on the images that we're seeing of his clothing. We've, we've got really small drops. And now they're, they're saying that, uh, you know, basically we're not finding significant amounts of blood in the car. So I was just curious about what they were testing for DNA. But I guess it could be touch. Um, I'm not sure. All right, Ed. There's no evidence that Jason was traveling to meet with or had communicated intent to meet with anyone in or around Luling. Jason's father, mother, and family members have been extremely helpful to investigators. Jason's ex-girlfriend, who resides out of state, has been fully cooperative in assisting investigators. Their cooperation has been essential and appreciated. They are not suspects or persons of interest and are not believed to be withholding any information. The Caldwell County Sheriff's Office will continue to lose, utilize all available methods, techniques, and resources to obtain information that will assist us in, lo in locating Jason. At this time, there's no evidence that an unknown person of interest is involved in this incident, and investigators believe that there is no threat to our community. Investigators believe that this is an isolated event. The Sheriff's Office and investigators will continue to aggressively seek out evidence in this missing person incident. The Sheriff's Office will continue to work with Texas Search and Rescue and other search organizations in an effort to discover every, any evidence of Jason's location and additional searches are being planned and organized. Investigators at the Sheriff's Office do not specialize in search and rescue and defer to the subject matter experts and specialists in these endeavors. Endeavors. Investigators have reviewed hundreds of hours of video from cameras in and around Luling, none of which have produced any evidentiary findings. Members of the public who have game cameras on private property or private surveillance video from the area are encouraged to review that as soon as possible. You may contact our office for assistance in reviewing video if needed. Please review the most current missing persons flyer missing person flyer with an updated picture showing Jason within an hour of him going missing. All right, Ed, I think we're good to uh, finish it off there. And okay. Okay. Uh, let me bring up some of those new photos here. Um, just curious, do they know why the beta fish was dead? Um, well, if the, if the glass is on its side, that's a tumbler with a lid with a, um, has a closable straw hole. And Jason always brings his beta with him when he travels to, uh, if he's coming home, he's going to, he's not going to leave his beta fish for yeah. a month. Uh, so that's what he travels with it. I don't know why he says it's dead. I, but if it's on its side and the lid is open, the, if the water drained out, then the fish would die. Um, I know later what had happened is the trooper had put it along the side of the road and uh, one of the searchers' trucks ran over it. So, oh, of course, dead. Okay. Uh, let's see here. And do we know the source for these newer photos? Are they from his phone? Yes. As I understand, those are uh, either Instagram, Snapchat with one of his friends whom he was talking with right before he's leaving as he was packing up. Okay. And here we can see that's part of the logo that matches on the shirt that was found. So it does seem like strong. With his long, with his long just finished finals, hair needs a haircut. 
Yeah. Some people are really struck by the change in his appearance. I'm like, you must not have college students who go through the finals because scruffy is the look for, you know, college students with finals. And, you know, yeah, I don't look hair length and all that. I'm like, it's kind of like, Hey, it's your hair. Um, now there's another picture that previously that I think was uh, at his sister's wedding. You do get to clean up for a, for an event like that. Otherwise, you're a big boy or a big girl. It's your hair. I'm not. I'm not worrying about hair length. I'm sorry. That's. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you pick your battles as a parent. That's. You know, they don't like the way my son looks. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. I got. I gotcha. All right. Um. So we did have some people that kicked in some information. Um, their thoughts and theories. Uh, Adventures with Layla says, I lived in San Marcos for about seven years. I can tell you 80 is crazy. Seen so many accidents and mainly with the fault of big semis. Uh, also, there is a lot of deer out there. Uh, could have tried to avoid hitting it and lost control. And I think that's still a theory that's on the table, right, Kent? That this was... Yeah. Okay. Uh, Lane yeah, Tanner. I mean Go ahead. It's this is country. I mean, you know, Luling. Um, this is uh, oil field land and and ranches, and a lot of um, you know, uh, there's barbed wire on either side. But the deer have passed. They go through. And like I said, that night I was there. I had deer run across my path more than once, maybe three times on that road. Even a coyote, which surprised struck the heck out of me. A coyote. Yeah. But yeah, that easily could happen. It easily could just be you go too far over the shoulder, you overcorrect, certainly. Or it could be something more nefarious. Yeah. Uh, Lane Tanner comments, I own 10 acres, about six or seven miles from the wreck. It can get a little sketchy out there sometimes. In 2020, two teenagers driving an ATV in rural Luling were shot and killed by a man who said he thought they were aliens trying to kill him. Lots of meth out there is what Lane states. I was also contacted by someone uh, stating that they had worked in law enforcement in the area for many years. His main concern was something that you've actually brought up a few times in today's talk, a possible carjacking. Uh, he said, quote, lots of craziness out there and many patrol officers would tell you Sunday nights are the worst. Now, I know on the information I'm seeing locally for where I live, carjacking is on the rise. Um, also nationally, we're seeing stats, uh, particularly since the pandemic has started. It has doubled in Chicago. It's climbed 90% in New Orleans, 41% increase in Minneapolis. Is carjacking something that you're talking to the investigators about? Are you hearing about that as a possibility from them? Um, I mean, anything's possible. Like, like I said before, what we think we know to feel at least some reasonable certainty, he was sitting at that light. What happened for the next 67 minutes? No one can reasonably, could he have been carjacked at that intersection? Could he have dropped his phone and do what I would hope he would do, pull over, look for his phone, and then maybe someone was at the park. Maybe something happened there. Who knows? I mean, I think that's more likely that something happened with someone in town and then he would just, you know, why would he be down that road? Well, if any of us, if we're scared and someone's coming after us, we just haul rear as any direction possible. Right. Um, 
could he have driven up on someone doing a, a meth deal or something, a group out in the middle of nowhere doing some drug transfer or something? That's the drug part that's more likely than anything about him being a drug. That's the part that's possible. Uh, likely, nothing's, nothing makes sense, but something happened um, in that time um, because he would not normally by any means go there. I mean, my son's not stupid. If, if he missed the turn, a nor, you know, normal brain functioning anybody, you uh, if you hit dirt road, you know, you're not on the way to I-10. I can guarantee you that. Right. Um, so he's, he's not a fool. He's not going to drive three miles for no reason, uh, in a way he's never been. Um, so what caused him to do that? Was he driving the car? You know, some people have said he was, you know, uh, carjacked and, and was no longer in the car and someone uh, trashed it there three miles away. It's more likely that happened than he gets carjacked sitting in his apartment complex in San Marcos. Why in the world would you drive over 30 miles to Luling to dump a car? You can dump a car anywhere along Highway 80. You saw the satellite imagery. You wouldn't do that. But could he be carjacked in Luling or somewhere right there? Possibly. Now, about the clothes and all that, I don't know, but all of it hurts my heart. I can guarantee you that. Yeah. And, of course, we have many viewers that are concerned uh, about a head injury and what that might do to him uh, and how he might respond to that Um which especially talking about the clothes, I mean, I think is, is a very serious consideration in all this as well. Um, well, that is all the new information. Uh, if you know anything about Jason Landry's whereabouts, please call the Caldwell County Sheriff's Office at 512-398-6777. You can also email Detective Jeff Ferry at jeff.ferry at co.caldwell dot tx dot us uh kent are there any events coming up or other ways that the community can help support you in your search for jason well the first is the simplest we appreciate prayer um not just for jason and our family but for law enforcement who's working this all the, for y'all for thank you so much for doing this um i know in terms of the searching they're working out a new plan and we're here at the beginning of February. And I know they have a couple of weeks they're working with you know, Texas SARS, EquiSearch, kind of the professional searchers. They're looking at, at uh, probably like three weekends from now, I think it is, uh, you know, now we're at two and a half or whatever it is, um, that there might be a point for the search that we would have like one of the, what EquiSearch normally does, get as many people who are as interested, we all line up and we're gonna you know, search it um, uh, by a large group of the public. I know that they have that planned. I want to say that's the 19th. I don't know off the top of my head if that's a, a Saturday, but I think that's whenever around there, whenever it is a Saturday, they'll be talking more about that. Um, you know, if, if it comes to that point uh, that anybody who is interested um, well, is welcome to come in and to join that. I know, uh, talking with Jeff Berry, who's who's done a uh, really wonderful work and being very communicative with us. Um, he was saying that they have a large increase in traffic of people driving through Luling, driving 
this around the site. Y'all probably are more aware of this than I am. That's that's an odd thing to me. I don't. Yeah. But obviously, uh, there's a lot of people um, thinking through it and trying to make it make sense. And and I get that because that's every my every waking moment is trying to make this make sense. But all I really care about is I want my son home. I want him safe. Um, but we want answers because I think for all of us, when we don't have answers for these types of situations, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. This can happen to anyone, uh, you know, and that's part of the, all the supposition that that waste of time and energy. Jason was not unusual. He was not involved with anything nefarious. He's just a college student coming home. It's as simple as that. Uh, and for those 67 minutes, you know, everybody start your brains working, sitting at that light. What are the possibilities? What what do all of these facts that people have re- uh, released, how can we put them all together in a way that makes sense for those 67 minutes? And then what I really care about, frankly, is what happened after that, uh, you know, and where's Jason right now? But I think, you know, the reason we're doing this is not just to get awareness, but, you know, y'all's audience are the type that, I mean, just listening to your podcast, listening to you on YouTube, y'all are spitting off cases. Hey, it's like this. It's like this. It's like this other one. You know, this is the universe. Y'all are professionals in this particular little area. Maybe someone can put something together or hopefully someone come forward who actually knows some facts that could help answer these questions and make it make sense. And I'd love nothing better for y'all to have a follow-up that, you know, Jason safely discovered. And I'll bring Jason back and he can tell us the story as to what happened, because I I want to hear what the heck happened. You yeah. know, I hope it's not a bad one. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Kent. Really appreciate everything that you've contributed, yeah. and please know that uh, our our hearts are with you and your family. And we've got many supporters uh, that are watching these videos that are looking to help in any way they can too. Um, So following the Facebook page for the church, I'll have a link to that in the description box down below, probably the best way that you can keep up to date uh, with Kent and what's currently going on. Yeah, I I do have a, I do have a, actually that raises a question. So y'all know better than me. I'm I'm not a Facebook person or all that kind of stuff, but would it help to start a separate Facebook page that just is about this um, yeah, 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 absolutely. And I'll, I'll tell you this, and we will probably be doing that uh, over the next couple of days to Excellent. give people an opportunity to, uh, you know, we'll put this information and uh, put it all on there because, um, you know, the church's Facebook page is the church's, it's not yeah. personal time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and um, yeah, it, it is a good thing to do. I've got a bunch of information uh, and tips and stuff that I can send you. I've got I put a whole page yeah. together to try to help people in, in this situation. So I'll get that your yeah. way. Uh, and, and, I'll, with, and I'll send you the, the, the name of the page or whatever so y'all can yeah. you know, put, edit that in. And that would be great for both of us. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, whenever we get that information, it will be updated in the description box below. So if you guys are watching this uh, a few days down the road, check out that description box. That new link should be there. Uh, Ed, did you have some insight on that? 
on the Facebook page? Oh yeah, you absolutely got to do it. Uh, I know that most of the, the the disappearances we cover on Unfound do have Facebook pages, but um, once in a while we do run across one that doesn't. And I can tell you that there are many people out here, who, out there in the public who care about these disappearances, who have experience setting these Facebook pages up for people like yourself. So um, they could probably, uh, some people in my audience and John, John's audience could certainly give you a lot of good tips on how to post, what to post, and how frequently to post on there, even if there's not any new information. A lot of people are very knowledgeable in that area. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Big thank you to Ed Denzel for helping me out today. Ed, uh, once again, where can people find your work? Uh, you can go to the unfoundpodcast.com. Uh, my assistant, Natasha, puts a lot of uh, uh, information about disappearances that we've covered and we'll be covering on there. Once again, the unfoundpodcast.com. Just talking about Facebook, we have the Facebook page and the discussion group, the private discussion group, which has around 8,000 people in it. And once again, uh, the episodes come out every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern uh, on all the popular podcasting applications, Spotify, iTunes, Podomatic, uh, et cetera. And Kent, it's a pleasure uh, getting to meet you. I didn't know that... Uh, we would have an opportunity to do this. It's all thanks to John. Uh, this is happening. When I talked about your son's disappearance earlier this month, I didn't know that was going to happen. So, happen. so I'm happy to uh, meet you and get to talk to you. I hope um, you know I can continue to help you in any way that I can. All yeah. right. And of course, a uh, big thank you to everyone that's watching today. And I'm going to ask that you please share this. We really want to keep the awareness raised, uh, particularly if you have friends, family, social media contacts in Texas, please share this video with them. A big thank you to new patron Aaron Ruth. And I also want to thank Seema Ramji, Oscar Moreno, and Eric Church for increasing their pledges. If you'd like to support the channel, please visit lordandarts.com where you can sign up for PayPal, Patreon, or buy merchandise. All of it helps keep me here trying to help families in these very tough situations, just like the one that Kent has been laying out for us today. Once again, uh, our hearts, our minds, our eyes are open looking for Jason, and I really appreciate you helping me with that. Take care, everyone. I'll see you again here on the Lord and Arts channel. And that was the February 2nd, 2021 interview John Lorden and I conducted with Kent Landry. I once again want to thank John for asking me to be on his program. I enjoyed it, and I hope we can do it again sometime. I also hope our coverage brings Jason's disappearance to a resolution. Now for my analysis of some of the new points mentioned in the interview. And then... A theory. The driver's side door was unlocked. The passenger side was locked. As John stated, that would make sense. This is a clarification from my Unfound Now episode, in which I stated all the doors were locked with the keys inside. The next topic, many of Jason's items being in the middle of the road. I don't think I can add anything to what I said during the interview. 
Did the tow truck driver go around these items, not realizing they were Jason's? Or did they fall off the truck after the driver put them on it, but forgot? How either answer would help solve the disappearance, I'm not sure. But I'd still like to know. And I can't forget that it seems the clothes Jason was wearing just hours before were in this trail of Jason's possessions on that road. As for the crash itself, John, Kent, and I are not car wreck experts. However, I don't think we were too far off. When we said that Jason lost control, the car spun around 180 degrees and struck the fence with the driver's side. What we don't know, though, is why it happened. Did a deer jump out into the road? Was Jason fishing around for his phone and took his eyes off the road? Did he fall asleep at the wheel? All of these and other theories are possible. Of course, this all still leaves three big questions. Number one, why didn't Jason use his phone to call for help? Number two, what was Jason doing up in that area northeast of Luling in the first place, since it wasn't on his way home? And number three, why hasn't Jason been found yet, alive or deceased? For the first question, I have to say the only answer that makes sense right now is that Jason did suffer some type of head injury. Not that it was necessarily fatal, but a concussion like what football players suffer. That would be enough for him to not be thinking normally. As for question number two, in addition to what I stated originally and somewhat logically back on January 3rd, that I believe Jason simply missed the turn that night, John in using Google Street View during our episode showed how the signage at the intersection where Jason was supposed to make the turn was minimal at best, with the important signs being after the intersection and not before it. This could have certainly caused Jason to miss that turn that night. Yet, it brings on another question. Why didn't Jason realize he was going the wrong direction when the road turned to gravel? Why didn't he stop, turn on his ways, and figure out where he was? I don't think we'll ever know that answer until we can ask Jason ourselves. As for question number three, if Jason walked away from the wreck, whether clothed or naked, with a head injury or not, why has he not yet been found, deceased or alive? after the searches that have been done. Well, I have a theory. And oddly enough, it comes from something else I know a lot about. Disc golf. Yes, really. Unlike ball golf, which is played on well-manicured fairways where the odds of losing a ball are very, very low, disc golf is often played through forests and public parks, with many trees, bushes, and brush where discs can land and be hard to find. In fact, any player who has been participating for even a month knows all about spending several minutes looking for a disc that landed where it shouldn't have. Moreover, 
Anybody who has played has experienced watching a disc fly into a bush about 200 feet away, walking down to that bush thinking that the disc will be found in seconds, to then still be there 20 minutes later looking for that disc, being totally perplexed how a bright orange disc cannot be seen in a green and brown bush. Seriously, every player has had this happen. And oftentimes, the disc isn't found, and the player or players must move on, leaving the lost disc there. But then what happens? Because we put our names and phone numbers on our discs for exactly these kinds of circumstances, because we would like to get our lost discs back, a player will get a call from somebody who found that disc. The call will be from a person who doesn't know you, doesn't know you played the course that day, didn't know you lost that disc, didn't know what color the disc was, and wasn't even looking for it, but this person found it anyway. How is that possible? It doesn't seem that it would be. But I am telling you, every single disc golf player who has more than a month of experience has had this happen. And every one of them thinks the same thing. How is this possible? How did I spend a half hour looking for my disc and not find it? Then somebody else finds it in 30 seconds who wasn't even looking for it. Well, being that my main concern in my life is missing persons, I cannot help but see a relationship between a player not being able to find a lost disc but being called later that some stranger found it, and searchers not being able to find a missing person, only to have a hiker come along years later and stumble upon remains in the original search area. In both situations, we know the time, we know the location, we know the description, we know the terrain. Searches are done in both cases. For missing discs, we measure the area covered in square yards. For missing people, we measure the area in square miles. We have experts involved, other players for disc golf, law enforcement, helicopters, dogs, etc. for missing people. And still, discs are not found until days later by some unconnected person. In missing persons cases, remains are found by somebody who didn't even know the person was missing. A good example of this would be Eric Prock's disappearance and recovery. You can look his case up for yourself. True, discs do not have free will. They cannot sprout legs and walk away. Yet, humans are much larger and we all have that survival instinct that if we are injured, our innate desire is to go for help. So, I think it evens out. So, once again, the question, why? Why do these seemingly illogical situations happen? My theory is that eventually, the longer the searches go, the more contradictory the logic becomes. Meaning, yes, it is absolutely helpful to see a disc go into a bush if the plan is to search for it. And in the search for Jason, it is certainly helpful to know where his car wrecked. Absolutely. But if searchers in both cases don't find what they're looking for right away, 
It becomes a fight between two competing yet logical thoughts. On one hand, since the disc wasn't found in the bush, we must widen our search. Likewise, since the person wasn't found in the immediate area of the car, we must widen our search. Both totally logical ideas. However, those ideas will compete against these logical ideas. I saw the disc go into this bush. It cannot be anywhere else. Or, the car is here, he obviously walked away on his own power, but he couldn't have walked very far, especially if it appears he had an injury. And, once the human mind starts to consider two contradictory yet logical ideas, doubt starts to creep in about both ideas. And with doubt comes a lack of desire to do either, the first idea or the second one. And I haven't even stated the other logical point, that we believe that once we've searched an area, that we don't have to do it again. Whereas the person who comes along and knows nothing about any of it, has no doubts at all, has no preconceptions. That person is just going about his usual business. What I'm saying is, if what you're looking for, a person or a disc, isn't found immediately where you think it should be, knowing where that disc or person disappeared from actually becomes a hindrance and not a help. Meaning, our thinking becomes limited because we think we already know all we need to know. People who conduct searches must also consider this. In the disappearance of Tom Brown, his remains were found a full 12 miles away from his vehicle. Of course, some people believe someone murdered him and put his bones there. Yet others, and it is a significant and knowledgeable group, believe Tom walked that entire way. If this is true, trying to find any person who walked away from a car wreck or anything else, with no proof of what direction he or she went, is virtually impossible using any sort of logical plan. And in fact, Tom's remains were found by luck. What I'm saying is there should be a scientific method used to plan searches. They should not be based on terrain, instinct, or people who are knowledgeable of the area. Search plans should be based on where missing people were eventually found in disappearances similar to the one for which the search is being conducted. So, for the search for Jason Landry, it would be best to research other incidents where a car was wrecked, the driver walked away, disappeared, but was eventually found, alive or deceased. And that's the program. I thank you for listening to this special episode of Unfound. <laughs>